Welcome back, everybody, to the newest episode of PenPodcast.com. I'm your host, Matthew Harms, founder of Pen for Hire, where we offer premier ghostwriting and author coaching services. Also, the creators of the Pen Podcast, where we sit with authors, writers, writing industry professionals, subject matter experts, and all around interesting people. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by someone who ticks many of those boxes and one that we've never had before. So please welcome Lucas Hunt. How are you today, Lucas? Uh, doing great, Matthew. Thank you very much for having me on the program. Uh, it is my pleasure. Always nice to have another New Yorker on as well. New York's the place to be, even in summer when it's sweltering and you'd rather be by the sea. Oh, we might be differing there. I'm going to Mexico next week and I'm, I'm never happier than when I'm in Mexico. But yeah. I love my New York guests because I don't have to slow down my... <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no speed limit when it comes to speech. Um, and actually, that's kind of an interesting segue right there, because, right, one of the things that you do, I believe, requires pretty rapid Talk speech. fast. That's right. Auctioneers talk fast. We chant. We move it along. You know, sometimes you slow it down. You don't want to uh, dazzle people uh, too much. But, yeah, we're trained in fast talking. So tell me a little bit about how did you get into auctioneering? Yeah, so... A friend of mine saw me at a poetry reading in the Hamptons where I went out to study poetry in graduate school. And uh, she thought that I would be great to fill in for an auctioneer for a bra auction for a women's cancer organization in the Hamptons. And uh, you know, she, she, she thought my public speaking abilities were great as a poet and that that would translate to fundraising. And so I, uh, I asked her why she thought that could ever be true. And, but it turned out that they had an auctioneer who got sick. So I went and filled in for their auctioneer and loved it. Just loved the idea of you know, fundraising for a cause that could help people, you know, people that were um, overcoming in this, in this case, cancer. It was so inspiring, just like poetry can be inspiring. Fundraising you know, for nonprofits is inspiring. So that was the segue. So, how, yeah, I mean, I didn't even plan that, but that, that works out wonderfully. So we're going we're gonna to sit here for a minute. How do you even bring yourself to say, yeah, that's something I'll take a shot at? Yeah. Well, I grew up in Iowa in an agricultural community where auctions were commonplace, you know, on the weekends at the American Legion, at the ballpark, uh, in the barns, in the fields. It was just a part of our culture. You know, they call it in the auctioneering world, triple Ds, death divorce or debt. And so, you know, when property exchanges hands in those instances, the auctioneer comes out. Uh, so I was around that a lot growing up and that's where you hear that fast talking, you know, $100 better not to, not to, $100 better not three, that kind of thing. But uh, I moved to the Hamptons for graduate school to study poetry and then got exposed to the gala world. So kind of going from pigs to pearls in, in that sense. And that's how kind of literature, literate, their literary life led into the, the nonprofit world. Yeah, it's so funny. Now that you say that, that makes perfect sense. I guess just being from New York and you know, you're seeing all these kind of more high profile auctions, you tend to lose sight of the fact of all the other things that get auctioned off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely real estate uh, and around the country, it's even more than in New York, but real estate, personal property, art, antiques, and then private estates, you know, when people pass on. But the type of auctioneering that I ended up specializing in was uh, with nonprofit fundraising. So I'm selling off experience packages at big dinners and then also 
just asking people to donate, sometimes selling nothing, but merely appealing to people for donations. That, and you know, as a, as a word guy and as a language guy, I, I've always found the auctioning world interesting because kind of like you just did that little brief, uh, I, I'm not even going to attempt to recreate it because I can't, but it almost sounds like you guys are speaking your own language. What we're doing in the, in the fast talking scenario is chanting, and that is rolling together a series of numbers and a series of filler words. So the number, you know, is like one. One dollar now two, and then dollar becomes a filler word. Now is a filler word. So one one dollar now two two dollars now three. Well, when you start rolling that together, you're saying things like one dollar bitter now two now two dollar bitter now three. So dollar bitter becomes a filler. One dollar now two now two now dollar now three now three now three dollar bitter now four now four now four now dollar bitter, and then you just kind of keep it going so that it becomes this kind of rhythmic meant to be to convey urgency to the bitter. You know, now's the time to give. I feel like my mouth would get tired. So at what point do yeah. you take breaths and, and how long can this go on for? Yeah, well, so at auctioneering school, college in Iowa where I went, you literally wake up in the morning, you practice for half an hour, just warming up, saying tongue twisters. The big brown bug bit a big brown bear. The big brown bug bit a big brown bear. You say that 30 times. Tommy Atatomus took two T's, tied them to the top of two trees. Say that 30 times. Series of like 10 tongue twisters. Then you do counting drills. You just say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, up to a hundred. And then in reverse, so like 100, 99, 98, 97, all the way down. Uh, you do different increments, two and a half, five, seven, half, 10, 12 and a half, 15, all the way up to hundred and down, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. So you sort of really build up your capacity for not only breathing, but speaking. And then, yeah, I'm not a real auctioneer who does, you know, car auctioneers, cattle auctioneers, They'll go on for hours and hours with that at that clip. Fortunately, mine in the ballroom, it, it can be much slower. It's more of an artistic style, you know, hundred dollars. Well, I don't even say hundred. One thousand now two. Would you bid two thousand? How many people would bid two? So it can be whatever the speed. And the, the higher the increment, the more you slow down. So the people are very clear. So if you're saying one point one million dollars. You're not saying 1.1 now, 1.2, 1.3. You know, you're saying 1.1 million. We will bid 1.2. So I've got a couple of questions. I'm going to start with this last one first. Uh, has there ever been an issue, either with your, maybe not with yourself, but that you've seen where someone wound up bidding on something that they really didn't intend to bid because they didn't understand the number? Oh, yeah. They, they were drunk is usually the case. And that's where you got to slow it down. And yeah, it happens. There's buyer's remorse, you know. I would say within 10 seconds of, no, probably within five seconds of, of maybe even three seconds, you know, there's two bidders. One is going to be the winner. One is not. The person who doesn't win probably three seconds after not winning is usually quite relieved they didn't win. People get swept up in the moment. You know, they're wanting to uh, appear whatever, alpha, bitter, generous, dominant, rich, you know, whatever the idea is there just to be seen as generous but yeah there there's but there's also the case where people wish they would have bid higher you know they stop too soon there's the the bidder's remorse and then there's the buyer's remorse the buyer is like oh shoot should i have bought in it uh we'll have a drink it's too late you bought it and then the bidder remorse is like oh i could have gone higher you know and i'll never have a chance to to kind of win that thing again because it was priceless so 
Oh man, uh, hold on, I gotta, I gotta write this down because there's two equally combative thoughts in my heads right now. So the first is, you mentioned usually someone's drunk. So yeah, you can't enter into a legal contract when you're drunk. So do you, do you ever run into an instance where someone's like, all right, you're, you're out. You, you were too inebriated to make this decision or is it kind of like, nope, that doesn't apply here. This is charity. Yeah, we'll take the money. There's again, you can't talk too fast and you can't drink too much and you can't donate too much money at all. As long as, as long as people give and, and generally there's a, the verbal contract that you're talking about is non-binding. You know, if you say, yes, I will pay for this or yes, I will bid for this. It's non-binding. You know, I can say sold to you for $10,000, but it's not something that, you know, is going to stand up. And so, because it is nonprofit, it generally happens that the honor system works out and people uh, honor their bids. Hence the need to slow it down and make sure you look at people. Are you in at 10,000? Okay. Going once, anyone else going twice, you're sold. So yeah, you want to work with consent carefully in the ballrooms. Got it. The, the second thought I had to that point is when you said bidder's remorse. Have you ever seen an instance where the bidder was so upset that they didn't get it that they tried to then buy it from the person who won? Not directly, but I have had cases where people will come up afterwards and say, can you, do you have another one? Was there perhaps a second one? Or can you go get a second one for me? That's the more common scenario where they sit for a minute and they're like, you know, I really wanted that. Perhaps they have a second one. And sometimes I do. Right. I would imagine in the, in the case of like an autographed Babe Ruth rookie card, you probably don't have a second one sitting in the back room. But in the case yeah. of something that was donated by a corporate sponsor where it's, you can easily go back. Yeah. Can you give us another one? We might pay you something for this one. Yeah. If there's a suite to a Billy Joel, you know, concert, there might be in a second suite, you know, there might be a second concert. So, or if it's a trip, you know, weekend in the Hamptons or golfing, you know, tickets to the masters, it's like, we can probably come up with it, you know, for the right price. Got it. Yeah. No, and whatever that guy got it for is not going to be what you're getting it for. Cause now we've got to put in some extra work here. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to pay. Yeah. That, that's a New York mentality right there. It's like, well, you lost out the first time. So what's it worth to you this time? Yeah. You got um, it. Awesome. So I, I'm going to jump back to the original question I had before we went down this rabbit hole, because you mentioned poetry for your master's in the Hamptons, but then you went back to auctioneering school in Idaho. So yeah. I, I didn't realize that was an actual like field of study. Yeah. I, I mean, just as there are MFAs in poetry, there are um, advanced programs for auctioneers. And I went to Worldwide College of Auctioneering in Mason City, Iowa. And uh, when you're there, you learn the basics of the trade, of the profession. And then I chose to specialize in benefit auctioneering, which is specific, and trained with the National Auctioneers Association uh, to become a benefit auctioneer specialist. And then also trained with Christie's and Sotheby's uh, art auctioneers to learn the English style, because there's the American style, that's the fast talking. And then the English style, which is a little bit more about clear diction. And then also just, you know, the school of, uh, of live events where you're, you're just talking to people and just joking around and, you know, gesticulating and trying to cajole them into donating money. So that's just kind of a uh, human nature. You know, I joined Toastmasters uh, because that's uh, a great place to practice public speaking. 
took improv comedy classes because that's a, a great way to think on your feet. And then you get into physical stuff too, dance, uh, acting, you know, singing, whatever you can do to broaden your repertoire as a public speaker, performer, auctioneer person. Yeah, to make that character more round. So if anyone else had the same perception of auctioneering strictly being someone who can talk really fast, I, I think you just debunked that for all <laughs> of them. There is so much more involved. Yeah. Clarity is everything. Speed is nothing in that case. Thank you for listening to the penpodcast.com, produced by Pen for Hire. Those who fail to plan, plan to fail. While many writers are capable of writing entire novels without ever planning or getting writer's block, most need some kind of structure. Taking the raw thoughts out of your head and organizing them before or during the writing process can drastically improve quality and efficiency. Visit our website at www.penforhirenyc.com to get a free consultation on our author coaching services today. And now back to the interview. Yeah. Oh, now I got one of my million dollar questions for you. How did you make the leap from auctioneering to poetry? Well, it started with poetry. So the leap was, I think, about an, an economy of language. Both poets and auctioneers need to say the most in the least amount of words. You only have so much time when you're dealing with people drinking a gala fundraising event. 500 people who are all very wealthy, all very affluent, don't need to listen to you speak very long until they decide not to listen. So poetry is an excellent tool for fundraising and auctioneering because it forces you to get to the point quickly. Huh. Okay. So the poetry came before the auctioneering and then kind of uh, progressed into this then just really taking the poetry to the higher level I think the the fact that uh I did study poetry and language and communication and and everything that goes along with that humanities arts you know you're constantly as a poet aware of the music of language the mu music itself fine arts sculpture opera theater poetry you know permeates and pervades all the arts it speaks the language i mean it's a universal language in a way poetry is so when you look at that when you look at say what can poetry touch that philanthropy also touches hearts so the connection for me after a long time was that poetry is the language of, of feelings and, and on a deep level emotions philanthropy which is for me my kind of auctioneering is also on the level of empathy, pathos, um, helping others, identifying with others, putting yourself in other people's shoes. So a, a poet does a good job if he writes, he or she writes a poem that someone is able just to step into. And it may not be their world. It could be some very foreign world. But as a reader, if you can step into, say, Rumi, you know, a mid-century poet who, you know, you would think, oh, how am I going to relate to this man who lives in you know, Arabia uh, or the Persian, you know, um, peninsula uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And yet you can, you can just step into a roomy poem because it's, it's there and it's simple. So I think that's the case for poetry and philanthropy 
in similar subjects and how I can, as a poet, be an auctioneer for nonprofit organizations. Got it. All right, so that ties those two together. Now I've got to kind of move into something that I know the audience doesn't. Where did your third part of your expertise or that little third part of your history that you tell me about behind the scenes tie in with this? Yeah, so for years (laughs) before starting the company where we have multiple auctioneers, an agency, if you will, and work as consultants and auctioneers for nonprofit organizations having events, Prior to that, I worked as a literary agent. As a poet, it's very difficult to market your work at the same time as an author, whether you're self-published or published you know, with a, a major, minor, or in-between publisher, it's a challenge to market your work. And so after college, I was working at a bookstore, writing poetry, and found a job at a literary agency in the Hamptons. And there served over I think it was about 100 to 150 authors, fiction, nonfiction, a lot of crime, mystery, thriller, no poets. Well, some poets that had written novels, but uh, I think it was through that experience, business-wise, managing an agency and working with so many um, personalities that I was then later on able to start this company working in philanthropy, working as an auctioneer where we work with equal number of uh, nonprofit clients a year. The agency model is what I call it. And how, about how long did you do the literary agent gig? I was a literary agent for 10 years. Uh, and now I've been uh, an auctioneer consultant for about 12. Yeah. What made you give up the literary agent work? Well, it's dismal. You make no money. Uh, it takes so much effort to see a book come to life. And, uh, and it's rewarding, you know, in that sense. But the publishing world is always in demise. It's always shrinking. It's always aggregating itself and becoming more corporate. It's difficult to, for me, to sustain a career in that atmosphere in the absence of a best-selling author as a client. You know, you need that to, to exist. I, re- I represented a lot of literary fiction, which wouldn't get large advances um, necessarily. Sometimes it could. But, um, you know, as dismal as it was, it was gorgeous and wonderful because you're reading stories, you're exposed to writers who are the most, you know, intelligent, refined, exciting people alive. Um, so you get to work with, you know, amazing people, but the business is just so fraught. So in a way, it almost sounds to me like your stint as a literary agent had an element of or would appeal to your philanthropic side. Kind of, yeah. I thought to myself at the time, I was an artist assistant as well for a, a painter and a sculptor. And as much as I loved working with them, I knew that I wasn't, you know, whatever I learned about painting and sculpting, it wasn't going to be put back in the world. And I thought, where could I both learn and give uh, best and working with writers, you know, because I, I did learn about the business of writing and about crafting stories, editing manuscripts, putting together synopses, proposals, query letters, you know, that kind of stuff. And at the same time, I was able to, as a poet, able to generate some advice that was, I think, more valuable. So learning and not teaching, but giving at the same time was super valuable. And yeah, moving from 
<laughs> moving from uh, an industry that didn't make a lot of money to the nonprofit world, you know, philanthropy. I think you have to be a bit of a philanthropist to be a literary agent. And that's actually something I've never heard before is just how hard it is to make money as a literary agent. Because as a writer and someone who works with a lot of writers, both nonfiction and fiction, it's common knowledge that most writers make no money. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to say, all right, I'm going to give me like 20 to 50 writers and let me try to make money with them, you can imagine the challenge. Yeah. 100% of zero is zero, right? Yeah. It can be. Yeah. And then that was the experience. I worked at a large literary agency, or a boutique literary agency with a lot, with some major clients and then started my own agency in the city um, and did that for uh, a couple of years and just quickly realized that as much as I liked it, I didn't love it enough to go down with the ship. Thank you for listening to the penpodcast.com produced by Pen for Hire. There's a saying, don't judge a book by its cover but that was never meant to actually apply to books. Unfortunately, readers are naturally inclined to books with covers and titles that catch their attention. Don't let your masterpiece go on read because of a poorly designed cover. A great book cover doesn't have to break your budget either. Visit our website at www.penforhirenyc.com to get a free consultation today. And now back to the interview. Got it. Uh, that's that's very enlightening. Uh, so I'm going to jump back to something more, I don't want to say more interesting, but definitely more up your alley of what you're currently doing. I always like to know what's one of the best experiences or stories you have from your world in auctioneering, like the most rewarding, fulfilling. Yeah. I, I mean, every night's kind of a miracle because I witness hundreds of people, sometimes very spontaneously decide to give money to a cause that they may have heard about or, or it may be new to them. So to be in the presence of the sort of philanthropic spirit, I describe it as I get to turn on this fountain of generosity, watch the water come up and splash around in it. Uh, that to me is a joy. It puts you at the forefront of um, human kindness. And that, you know, that is a great counteractive influence to maybe what you read in the news and and what you think about how bad things are people are always willing to help each other out it's an absolute universal precept you know if you exist it's easy to want others to be able to continue existing as well and so there's a lot of breakthroughs in cancer in in human rights in um health in education and the arts, you know, and that's just, that's just simply because people want to help people. And so for me, that's, that's the kind of beauty of it. And the poetry of it all um, happens there. Um, now, on that flip side of that, has there ever been a side of the auctioneering world where there was just like a terrible experience or something you could not believe happened? Yeah, sometimes people are just like really loud and drunk and, and, uh, they don't care and it's hard as a public speaker you know when you're kind of shunned or rejected by hundreds of people and you hear it you know you hear it immediately because people are just talking and it's difficult to get their attention yeah there's been a few times where I've walked off stage and been like I don't want to do this you know I, this is this is bad you know and you call make a couple calls and you remember that 95% of the time it's awesome I'm like any job I'm sure people want to I heard a woman recently 
talking about her work. I think she was an architect. She said, I've been working on this project for 20 years and um, sometimes I just feel like throwing it all in the garbage. You know, I think, I think a lot of people, especially writers can relate to that because you put so much into something and in hoping, you know, that it'll come to light one day. And it just, you know, at times you're like, I, don't know, I could throw it all in the garbage, but you know, you get something to eat, you sleep a little bit and you're, you're okay the next day and you're back at the desk. You know, it's so funny you make that comparison because that's absolutely the way with writers. You could have 99 people read your book or your poetry or your screenplay and tell you it's the greatest thing they've ever read. And it's yeah. that one person who gives you the one star and they call it yeah. trash and you're like, I'm done. Why am I doing this? Yeah, yeah. Bob Smith from Kansas didn't like me on Amazon. I think I got to quit writing. Yeah. <laughs> like, forget all the other people who love and support me. Bob right. Smith to ruin my career. Yep, that guy. I also find it intriguing. I mean, maybe I shouldn't because sometimes I think we put the the affluent or the elite on this pedestal, right? Of, you know, look what they've accomplished. Look where they're at in life. But they can be just as rude as anybody else, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think so. I, I won't go too deep into that, but yeah, absolutely. Lucas, this has been mind-blowing. Um like just the things I'm learning. This is one of my favorite things about doing this show. So I, I appreciate your time. Um, for everyone that's listening, you know, we've got a, an audience of, you know, people across the gamut, my clients, people we write for, who are the best people that you're looking to meet? So if we have people listening right now um, who may be thinking they want to do an auction or that they could use some consulting, who are the best type of people that should reach out to you to find out more about how you can help enhance their organization? Yeah. Thanks for that question, Matthew. You know, if if anyone listening or watching knows of a nonprofit organization that struggles to fundraise, that's someone that I could help. And uh, we, you know, focus on event fundraising. People that have uh, get their donors together, get their guests together, and we have an auction. Or sometimes we just ask for donations. You know, we do what we call mission-based fundraising, where we don't have any things we sell, but uh, we present. Uh, a short program, the organization presents a short program, uh, and then we follow that with fundraising so that, you know, so many people don't need anything or want anything, but they do want to make a difference. And, and that's what the mission-based fundraising does. So yeah, if anyone knows of any nonprofit organizations that need fundraising support, we consult with them and then host fundraising at events. That is incredible. So for everyone listening, um, you know, I know we took a slightly different approach to our show today, but I, I know for me, just I've got a few things I'm going to implement in my own writing, um, and it's restored my faith in humanity. Right, a lot of what we do here at Pen for Hire, unfortunately, we don't always charge what we should charge. Sometimes someone just has that story, they have that inspiration that needs to be out there in the world, and that's the way I like to give back. You know, what maybe what I can't do financially, I can do with my my God given skills. Mm -hmm. help them tell that story so for anyone listening if you think you have a cause or, or you, even if you're not sure please reach out to lucas um find out what they can do for you how they can help your organization and lucas what's the best way for them to reach out to you i guess just email lucas l-u-c-a-s at huntauctioneers.com uh lucas at h-u-n-t auctioneers a-u-c-t-i-o-n-e-e-r-s.com 
That is incredible. We'll make sure that's all in the show notes as well. Um, as always, anyone listening, if you want, you could always reach out to me directly as well at the show or at matt at penforhirenyc.com. You should know how to get me by now. We appreciate you all tuning in and spending this time with me and Lucas Hunt. Um, it's been an absolutely amazing experience for me. I hope you feel the same. And Lucas, thank you again for being here on this humid, hot, and just miserable New York day. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Enjoy your beach time. You too. Well, I don't think you're going to the beach, but thank you. Yeah, I'll get there. Thank you, Lucas. All right. Take care, Matt. Bye.